Lord, this morning we thank you, God. We thank you and we proclaim with all the churches meeting in this city today and all the churches meeting around the world that Christ has risen from the dead, that you are alive and you are with us this morning, God. And we, I pray that you would open up this wonderful text once again to us, God, and we would approach it with this childlike wonder. And God, give us this childlike amazement. And I know that there's some of us in here that might be skeptical about this particular story. I pray like Doubting Thomas, you would show yourself to them. Open our eyes, speak to our hearts like you did, open the scriptures to your disciples in that upper room. I pray you would do that even this morning, that you'd open your scriptures to us. And if there's dark hearts and dark minds, that you would say, let there be light. And I pray that people, that this whole gathered congregation this morning, this church, God, would repent and believe in Jesus together. We all would believe in Jesus. Would you use me, Lord, so humbled approaching this wonderful, marvelous text today. Would you anoint my mouth and my mind to speak your truth, God. We love you, Jesus. We are here for you to celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, the issue, normally, that people have with Jesus is not necessarily his teachings. We're normally pretty cool with his teachings. We almost all agree in here, especially in the Bay Area, that Jesus' lifestyle, like him living off the grain, like what we talked about last week, him plucking grain and rubbing his hands and eating it, living off the grain of the land, being a bit of a transient, his teachings and condemnation with the established order are not normally disputed. They're actually embraced. We're typically pretty cool with like the teachings of Jesus. You could even say that Jesus was an innovator. I mean, he started Christianity. And we're pretty cool with Jesus. We're pretty cool with his teachings. However, the resurrection of Jesus is a whole different story. Some of us in here are like, hey, I'm cool with his teachings, but don't tell me to believe in the resurrection. Dead people stay dead. End of story. This is a fun little tale that was cute. Jesus shows up. He wants some fish. That's funny, but it's not real. It's fantasy. They made that up. There's no way that's real. The biblical teaching that Jesus was totally dead through through a brutal Roman execution was laid in the grave and on the third day rose from the dead and was absolutely alive, showing himself to over 500 people at once, walking through walls and eating fish, that sort of resurrection, you're like, listen, that's a whole different subject. I'll take his teachings, thank you very much, but I'll leave behind the resurrection, because resurrections don't happen. However, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether we like Jesus' teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything. If it's not true, it also changes everything. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, if you've read that short story, it's wonderful. The character known as the misfit in that story, who's on the run from the authorities on this like murder and, and thievery spree through like Florida, who's on the run with his, with his gang, stumbles upon this family on a dirt road who's on vacation. They got in this car accident. And at the end of the story, this misfit explains the life-changing significance of Jesus' resurrection to grandma as his gang is marching the rest of the family into the woods and shooting them. And he's standing in front of grandma, and he says this right before 
he shoots grandma. Jesus was the only one who ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He's thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but to enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can. Flannery O'Connor is declaring what the New Testament declares, that the resurrection is everything and it changes everything. If it's true, if the resurrection is true, there's nothing left to do but to give your life to Jesus and follow him. But if it's not true, if the resurrection is not true, Jesus was naive, deceived, and at worst, he's a liar. Because he preached that God would vindicate him through his horrific death on behalf of humanity by a resurrection from the dead. He went around preaching that. If the resurrection is not true, God left Jesus dead. Think about that. If the resurrection is not true, then Jesus preached peace. He preached salvation. He preached the forgiveness of sins. And then he preached, I will die, and then I will rise again. And if the resurrection is not true, God left Jesus dead and the entire created order unanswered in their cry for salvation. Because when Jesus went to the cross, everybody was crying out, Hosanna, save us. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, God has left humanity's cry for salvation unanswered. And if it's not true, if the resurrection is not true, then as the misfit in O'Connor's story said, it's nothing for you to do but to enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. So make as much money as you can, have as much sex as you can, take in as much pleasure as you can. And if you follow that line of reasoning, as in Flannery O'Connor does beautifully in the story, do as much injustice as you can. That's what the misfit was in the story. He was like this personification of someone who understood the world-shattering significance of Jesus' resurrection, and then he rejected it. And he goes on to say this at the end of the story. If he didn't rise from the dead, then it's nothing for you to do but to enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. By killing somebody, or burning down his house, or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure, but meanness. He saw the resurrection of Jesus as being the pivotal point. If it's not true, then there's no point to life. This whole thing is going to burn up anyways. There is no meaning. Do whatever you want. And what I want to do is rob and murder. But we proclaim with the Bible that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. It's true. Jesus has been risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to the Cephas and the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive if you want to go talk to them. Though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom we did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Check this out. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, what does this resurrection mean? If this is everything, if the resurrection is everything, what does it mean? What does it mean, and how does it change everything? How does the resurrection change everything? To answer that, I want to ask another question. We just celebrated Good Friday on Friday, but we as a church celebrated on Sunday because, you know, we're young and we could do that still. So we celebrated last Sunday. We, we focused on the cross last Sunday. So to answer the question of what is the resurrection and what significance does it have, we have to first ask this question, what was the cross? Because the resurrection was the answer to the cross. In the Gospels, from the perspective of the followers of Jesus, get this, the cross of Jesus, when they saw Jesus crucified, it meant the end of hope. Their hopes were crucified with Jesus on that day. In Luke chapter 24, we read this story that on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus like strolls up to these two guys walking along the side of the road, he says in verse 17, what are you guys talking about? What's this conversation that you guys are having with each other? And they stood still, like they started walking, and Jesus walks up, hey, what are you guys talking about? What is this conversation you guys are having? And Jesus walks up, and he like, they stood still, and they like shrugged their shoulders looking sad. And one of them answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, and just being very playful, what things? Just like, tell me. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. From the disciples' perspective, it meant their hope of redemption, the kingdom of God coming near, was dead when Jesus died on the cross. Honestly, when they were going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, when they were going into Jerusalem, they had their bags packed and were ready to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand when Jesus would take the throne in Jerusalem. I mean, Peter rolled into Jerusalem with a sword. He was ready to overthrow Jerusalem with Jesus. That's what they thought. When Jesus went to the garden and these people were coming to take him, Peter goes, Jesus, listen, they try to take you, I got a sword. I, just, I, just, I don't know where, I just got it, and I got your back, dude. I got it covered. And so when these Roman centurions, these trained Roman centurions come in to arrest Jesus, Peter whips out the sword and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. I mean, who goes for the ear? When you have a dad, I mean, who goes for the ear? And who goes for the high priest's servant? When you got like Roman centurions, the only guy unarmed, and his earlobe. But that's, that's what they thought. They're like, okay, we're, we have to protect Jesus from these men because we're going to take over Jerusalem. Our bags are packed. We're going to the throne with him. That's what they thought. That's what they thought. But... Jesus, this was, if you've ever seen the movie Passion of the Christ, and I highly recommend you watch that movie. The very opening scene of that movie, Jesus heals this high priest servant's ear. He picks up his ear and puts it back on and heals him. 
and tells Peter to put away your sword. This kingdom will not come like that. Then he gives himself up. He turns himself in to these authorities. And he died. And with him, hope died. The last thing the disciples imagined was that this kingdom bringer, this Jesus they were coming to believe just might be the Messiah, would actually die at the hands of the pagan occupying forces. This was the last thing they thought would happen. It was the Messiah's job to liberate them from such oppression. But Jesus gave in to it. What happened at the cross was what it looked like to the disciples like total defeat. Like evil had won again. Notice in the gospel narratives, nobody said when Jesus was on the cross, it's all right, hey guys, Peter wasn't around the cross going, hey, everybody chill out, it's all right, cross is cool, he'll be back in a couple days, just watch. Nobody said that. Neither did they say this, oh, God bless him, he's in heaven now with God. They didn't say that either. They had hoped that Jesus would bring in the kingdom of God. They were in the habit of saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why these two men looked at the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus and said, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem us, but they crucified him so he couldn't have been. That's what they were saying to Jesus. The cross in that day wasn't worn around people's necks. The cross in that day wasn't tattooed on people's body. The cross had a Roman historical context. The Roman cross was Rome's way of saying, we rule. We run this place, and if you get in the way, we will kill you. We will crush you in the most humiliating and gruesome way possible. The cross, Rome's cross, which Jesus hung upon, meant that the kingdom of God hadn't come. It was Rome's way of saying, this kingdom rules, not your kingdom. Rome is still in charge. And what the cross meant to the disciples was, we bet on the wrong team. Rome won, game over. Even if Jesus was trying to redefine the way that we live through these really good acts of teachings and and the subversive kingdom and service and obedience to God, what did it matter now? Their hopes were dashed when they... And, then, and they barely escape with their own lives at the cross. This is the context of Easter morning. You have to understand that. You and I go into Easter morning really excited for our like, Easter outfits and, and like baskets and stuff like that. They looked at Easter morning as something all hope was lost. Our hope that the kingdom of God would come is gone. Rome rules. But there was also this buzz in the air on Sunday morning, on Easter morning. There's this buzz. Look if you could see it in verse 21 in Luke. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had, they'd even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the women have said but they, but him, they did not see. There was this buzz in the air. Oh my gosh, his body is gone. Angels were flying about. But my question is this. If Jesus was not in the tomb and angels were buzzing around Jerusalem, why were they walking to Emmaus? Why were they leaving? Like if you, your best friend died and was buried 
and there was talk that he was in North Beach, and there was angels in North Beach flying around everywhere, why would you be traveling to San Jose? There would, there, it wouldn't make sense at all. Like, why are you going there when there's things going on here? This is why. It wasn't convincing enough for them to stay in Jerusalem. Later, when these two men finally realize it was Jesus, they run back to Jerusalem, and they tell the others, and this is what they said in verse 36. And they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them. Okay? So they're all talking. They're like, oh my gosh, we saw him on the road to Emmaus. He was there. He was talking with us. He gave us the most awesome sermon of the Old Testament ever and all these things. And then Jesus walks up and he just appears and he goes, peace to you. Just shows up. And they were all startled and amazed. And, they, and then again, because remember, we've been talking about this. Jesus can read hearts. He said, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? I think that's kind of funny. (laughs) And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. They're like, actually, we do. Here's some fish. And then he's just eating the fish. Now listen, they still disbelieved. Jesus is there showing hands and feet, still there, eating fish with nail-scarred hands. And it says they still disbelieved, even though he was standing right in front of them. Why do they still believe, disbelieved? Because they witnessed the cross. They knew what the cross meant. They knew what it meant. It meant game over. They knew it was over. And Jesus being alive was simply too good to be true. And that's why they said they disbelieved for joy. That basically means it was too good to be true. There's no way that the, that the same man that was on that cross on Friday is standing right in front of me today. Now, you and I tend to think, well, they wanted and expected the resurrection to happen. That's why they believed. Or at best, that's why they believed. Or at worst, that's why they made it up. They made up the resurrection. The resurrection didn't really happen. They really wanted it to happen. They made it up. They didn't make it up. Now, we often think that we modern people take claims of something like the bodily resurrection with skepticism, and the ancients of Bible time would have easily accepted it. Like, well, they would have accepted the resurrection then because they're, they're, they're like, they're primitive. We're modern now. We have the internet to disprove things like that. <laughs> that stuff doesn't happen here. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. We've talked about this before. He calls this chronological snobbery. Now, we're already coffee snobs and wine snobs and music snobs. Let's not add another list thing to our list of snobbery. Let's not, let's not be chronological snobs. Let's not think, as C.S. Lewis has said, that this means since we're further along in the human timeline, we think that we're smarter, better, and not as naive as they were way back then. Let's not think that. People then, we, we, may, we might think, well, people then, back then, Bible times, they were primitive and they believed in all kinds of things like that. They believed in resurrections, and we today, we're modern, and we know that the dead stay dead. The thing is this, they didn't believe either. They didn't have the framework to support a bodily resurrection in the middle of history either. They didn't believe it when they were right, when he was right in front of them. This is why they didn't believe it when Jesus was standing there eating fish. When they see Jesus, they were not like high fives going around. And Peter's like, I told you, everybody pay up. I bet on five bucks that you would raise in three days. And I won. Everybody pay up. There was no high fives. There was no excitement. There was just 
They had a troubled heart and they still disbelieved. There's no way, there is no way that Jesus is standing right in front of us right now. When he says, look at my hands and my feet, and they actually do, they look at his hands and his feet, it says they still did not believe. This is why. They did not expect this to happen. They did not expect this to happen at all. Historian and theologian N.T. Wright, in his book, Who is Jesus?, says this about the possibility of the disciples making up the resurrection. If you're thinking, well, they made it up, this is what he says. It will not do to say that Jesus' disciples were so stunned and shocked by his death, so unable to come to terms with it that they projected their shattered hopes onto the screen of fantasy and invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a way of coping with a cruelly broken dream that has the initial apparent psychological plausibility, but it won't work as serious first century history. We know lots of other messianic and other and similar movements in the Jewish world roughly contemporary with Jesus. In many cases, the leader died a violent death at the hands of authorities. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been, had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. It involved human bodies. There would have to be an empty tomb somewhere, a Jewish revolutionary whose leader had been executed by authorities and who managed to escape arrest himself had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he was. What N.T. Wright is saying is that the strange story of Easter, of Jesus walking through walls, meeting people on the road, and then disappearing at dinner, then to reappear in a room full of disciples, and then asking for for broiled fish, is true. That story is true. They didn't make it up. You don't make up stories like this. And if you're thinking, well, we know better than to believe in the resurrection, they knew better too. They knew better as well then. Don't be arrogant. They knew better. Resurrections don't happen. They didn't even see it coming. In this story that we read right now, they're locked in a room hiding from the authorities. That's what John's gospel even says. They're hiding from the authorities. However, now, right now, the resurrection stands at the heart of the Christian message. The first sermons given by the disciples were testifying that Jesus had died for our sins and didn't remain dead. He rose from the grave, and just about every single one of them died because of that message. When before, they were scared to death and hiding from the authorities. What happened? Jesus was risen indeed. Jesus was risen indeed. And what this means When we say Christ is risen indeed, he was risen for his vindication, and he was risen for our justification. He was risen for his vindication and for our justification. During the ministry of Jesus, he made some crazy claims. He made insane claims, and those claims needed to be vindicated. Look at this quote. The strange announcement of the resurrection makes excellent sense in context. Jesus' action, his words, themselves stand in need of vindication. His offer merely a reckless, is this offer merely a reckless gesture? 
with the hard realities of history to prove to have been empty? Are his celebrity meals simply an empty charade? Stop there for a second. Jesus made some crazy claims. He claimed to forgive sins. He claimed to heal the sick. He promised peace and rest for weary souls. He promised that he would be living water and eternal daily bread. Jesus said that if you believe in him, you will never die. Those are some crazy big claims. Are those all empty claims? Did Jesus throw celebrity parties and invite people to feasts and eat with tax collectors and sinners for nothing? Are those all empty parties? You can't just die on a cross by an oppressive government and everything be okay after you say things like Jesus said. The quote goes on to say, Jesus is making a claim, a claim to be the one in whom, in and through whom Israel's God is restoring his people. The claim is highly controversial. It points within his own teaching to a final clash with the authorities who will wish him dead and act on that wish. Like any good Jew, he believes that if he faces this, the cross, in obedience to the divine plan, he will be vindicated. And the word for that is resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose proving that everything he said was right, that everything he said had validity, that everything he said had truth to it. Even more than this, not just Jesus' words, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then his words have no validity, but Paul makes a, a broader claim. He says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, the whole words of the Bible fall away. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. This is a bold, bold statement. He's saying that if Christ had not been risen from the dead, faith in anything, any part of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, or you think that the resurrection of Jesus is some peripheral thing, no big deal, you're missing the weight that God places on the resurrection. You see, God has always taken the initiative in speaking to humanity, always, and revealing himself in a series of redemptive events reaching far back to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. George Eldon Ladd, or Ladd, or I don't know how to say his last name, says this, God did not make himself known through a system of teaching, nor of a theology or a book necessarily, but, God, but through a series of events recorded in the Bible. The coming of Jesus of Nazareth was the climax of this series of redemptive events, and his resurrection is the event that validates all that came before. If Christ has not risen from the dead, the long course of God's redemptive acts to save his people ends in a dead-end street in a tomb. If the resurrection of Christ is not reality, then we have no assurance that God is the living God, for death has the last word. What Lot is saying is if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then any faith in the New Testament or the Old Testament is futile. The whole Bible falls apart if Jesus is not risen from the dead. But he is risen. And this is, this is why when he appeared to the two guys on the road to Emmaus, he said this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them 
all the Scripture the things concerning Himself. Through the resurrection, He says, it makes the whole Bible true. It makes everything true. It's the fulfillment of everything. This is why the misfit in Flannery O'Connor's story, short story, says that at the end of the story about Jesus rising from the dead, he says this, I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't rise from the dead. I wish I had been there, he said, hitting the ground with his fist. It ain't right that I wasn't there because if I had been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, he said in a high voice, if I had, if I had been there, I would have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. See, this misfit in this story knew if Jesus really did rise, it meant that everything that God ever promised was true. And this is why when Christ was risen, he was risen for our justification. Christ was risen for our justification. I want to be very, very clear right here. Romans chapter 4 says, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our sins, our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. This means that our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, us, you and I, being sinners, can be declared righteous in God's sight. We can be declared righteous in God's sight. Jesus rose from the dead, having fully paid the penalty for our sins, bearing all the wrath of God and all the shame and all the guilt. And because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our sins can be removed and we can be made right before God. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Behold, the new has come. So what do you do? What you do is you believe. You have faith. You trust. You trust in Jesus to rescue you from your sin. And you repent. The most beautiful word in the Bible. I want this church to be a church of repentance, that we're always repenting and turning to God. Turn from your ways and your doubts and your fears to Jesus and pray and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And what happens at that moment when you believe in Jesus and upon him and repent of your sins, what happens at that very moment? The Bible says that he forgives you and that you're brought near to God. The separation of sin, because sin separates, is removed and you're brought near to God. And the Bible says that you're part of a big family called the church. You're part of the church. And as the church, we get to participate in the beautiful sacrament of communion, which is a visible sign of an inward reality. We get to, to the reality is that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed that we can be brought near to God. And we get to do this together. We could take communion and celebrate Jesus together. We get to draw near to God in song and worship and prayer and communion together. Now, to believe in Jesus for your salvation, if you believe in Jesus for your salvation, when you believe in Jesus for your salvation, it's not a pie-in-the-sky salvation. It's not something far off and out there. It's tangible. It's palpable. It's here. It's right now. So don't think of when you, if you were to trust in Christ for your salvation, it's like, oh, it's there somewhere far off in the future. 
It's here and it's now. Bear with me as I close with one more quote. This is awesome. You see, just as that early Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus was a belief about something that actually happened in this real world, not simply a belief about a, a transcendent dimension, a spiritual or otherworldly reality which lives in this world, that leaves this world behind. So the continuing message of the resurrection is precisely not that there's life after death, there is, and all God's people will inherit it, but the message of the resurrection is that this present world matters, that the problems and the pains of this present world matter, that the living God has made a bridgehead into this present world with his healing and all-conquering love, and that in the name of this strong love, all evils, all injustices, and all pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won the day. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Make no bones about it. Easter day was the first great answer to that prayer. So this is why we who celebrate Easter do so with material things, water, bread, wine at Eucharist. Easter is about the living God claiming the world of space, time, and matter as his own. That is why Christians celebrate with candles and flowers and incense and processions and banners and above all, music. The world of creation has been reclaimed by the living and healing God. That's what the resurrection means, that God has really broken in. The inbreaking kingdom of God is now, right now, and we can have a standing, a righteous standing before God now. And what happens is we get to stand before God in the future, declared all right, declared completely healed and free, and what that does is it breaks into right now that we can stand before God right now whole, and that God can forgive us. This is what the resurrection means. Amen? Let's sing. Let's repent. Let's celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Would you stand with me as we pray? Thank you, God, for raising Christ from the dead. Jesus, death could not hold you. The tomb cannot hold you. Your life has won. You have conquered death, the fear of death, sin, hell. You've conquered it all, God. And Lord, today, we, I ask God for anyone that has not placed their faith in you, that they would place their faith in you this morning. That we would take communion and celebrate Jesus. That we would celebrate your life, your death, your resurrection, And that we would also, as we worship, and as we take communion, remember that we will sit with you one day soon at the wedding supper of the Lamb, all of us. We thank you for what the resurrection means, and we celebrate it today. In Jesus' name, amen.